Andy sent me a text earlier asking me the title of my message tonight. And uh, since I hadn't titled it yet, I just kind of sent something back. And, uh, and uh, a family church. And then I thought, family matters. Wait, it's all in the family. Wait, you know, came up. Uh, Kate plus eight. I, I don't know, you know, whatever you want to. The Duggars. No, I, I don't know, whatever you want to title it. You know, we're talking about family tonight. Uh, you know, as, as preachers, we, we are always looking for metaphors. We're always looking for uh, how we can find an idea or, or a word that will help us communicate spiritual truth to an individual or indivi- individuals uh, that will help them understand in a way that will make it just leap off the page to them where they can really grasp the idea that we're trying to, to get at. And it's, it's difficult to do that sometimes because there are, there are metaphors that not everybody gets. There's some things that are just... Uh, just not relevant to everybody. A lot of pastors like to gravitate towards uh, sports metaphors. And, uh, and, you know, they begin to talk about it. It's kind of like a touchdown. And half the audience is like, yeah, man, it's like a touchdown. And the other half of the audience is like, I don't even play basketball, you know. <laughs> and some of you who didn't get that, you're, you're that person we're talking about. And, uh, but uh, some analogies just don't work. Some metaphors just don't work. Or, or maybe, maybe it's like uh, NASCAR. And uh, you talk about drafting, and half the audience is like, man, or a quarter of the audience is like, yeah, drafting, you know. The other one's like trying to figure out why a NASCAR uh, would draw anyway, you know. Why are they spend time drawing? All right, moving on. See, it doesn't make sense, right? I mean, these metaphors can be difficult. But there are some metaphors that everybody gets. They're, they're ubiquitous. They are a couple of those tonight that, that I'm thinking of, like food, for instance. You know, those, everybody has to eat, right? I mean... We all know food, uh, and and we're all we could we could talk about food for days. You know, how many of you watch the Food Network every once in a while? Man, that's just fun to watch, right? Because we love food, and some of us even love cooking. If I wasn't preaching, I think I would find a place to cook. Man, I just like cooking. I'm not very good at it, but I love doing it. And then there's there's other metaphors, and, and one particularly that I think everybody can relate to is the, the metaphor of the family. This idea of a family, um, because everyone is part of a family. Now, we hear that, and, and some of us recoil tonight, uh, and here's why we recoil. We recoil because of the destruction and devastation of the family in our culture. Some of us say, I'm, I'm not part of a family because I, I didn't grow up with a, a mom and a dad and a brother and a sister and a white picket fence and a little poodle. So we have a hard time relating to that, but tonight, let's, you, you may not have been part of the ideal family, but you're still part of a family. You're still part of a family. And here there are many people from different walks of life. You've got different life experiences. Maybe you, I mean, I'll, I'll just be transparent. I grew up in a, in a home where we had a white house. We had, I had a brother and a sister. had a mom and a dad. My dad worked. My mom stayed home with us until we went to school. And then she went and worked a couple jobs. I mean, it was, just, it was a typical American family. So I don't know what it's like to experience life outside of a family like that, but you maybe do. But regardless of whether you've had the ideal situation or not, you still know what it means to be part of a family. You you are a part of a family. And uh, our culture sometimes views families so narrowly. We think that children are only part of our lives for 17 years, 364 days, and then they turn 18, and they become part of their own family, or they begin to go out and start their own family. 
And that's when we talk about the empty nest syndrome. Maybe you can, some of you can relate to that. I surely can't. I've got my hands full with Carla, Kelsey, and Caleb. And, uh, and uh, we don't know anything about an empty nest right now. But maybe you do. Maybe you've experienced that. But regardless of, uh, of whether your children have left home, they're still part of your family. They're still part of your family. And all of us are part of a family, and we will always be part of a family. So tonight, what I want us to explore uh, this first idea is that family is a biblical metaphor. And we're going to get to some passages in just a few minutes, but family is a biblical metaphor. For those of us who come to faith in Jesus Christ, that, ex- that extends throughout all eternity as we are part of the family of God. Because when God talks about this idea in Scripture, this concept of Him and His redeemed people, He speaks to us using a metaphor. And what metaphor does God use when He communicates His picture of Him and His redeemed people? Family. Even His, even the Trinity, the triune God, He speaks about Himself using the, this metaphorical language. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. This, this family language. God uses family language to describe himself. And we as the redeemed people, when we're referred to in Scripture, when he refers to his redeemed people in the New Testament, he refers to them as the bride of Christ. So we have bride and groom language as it relates to the people of God. It's, it's this idea of family. We, we often hear preachers talk about the first institution ever formed. What was the first institution? We heard it this The family. The family was formed. So when we talk about something that is ubiquitous, that everyone can relate to, we talk about the family. So family is a biblical metaphor. Secondly, it's biblical to refer to the church as a family. I mean, you probably use that language. So some of this is just kind of, okay, I I get it. But don't don't you say that's, they're they're part of my church family. Or, Or maybe at the end of the services in the church you grew up, you sang a little song. I'm so glad I'm a part of the family of God. Okay, see, there's another example of using a bad metaphor. Because <laughs> some of you know that and some of you don't, right? All right. So that's this idea of family of God. You've probably, if you've been in church any length of time, you probably understand that. You've heard that before. Well, I want you to take your Bible and turn to 1 Peter chapter 4 and 1 Timothy chapter 3. You need to hold those places because we're going to go back and forth between them for just a few minutes. 1 Peter chapter 4 and 1 Timothy chapter 3. In these two letters, you have two apostles, Peter and Paul, and they're writing to the church. Or or Paul is actually writing to Timothy here, who's a pastor of a church. And they're giving instruction on how the church is to be. Uh, They're giving instruction on how the church is to function. And even giving instruction of how families are to function within the church. And so in both of these letters, we'll see this. Let's look at 1 Peter chapter 4, 7, verse 17 first. And then we're going to flip quickly over to chapter 3, verses 14 and 16. So 1 Peter 4, verse 17. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel? We see that Peter refers to God's people as the household of God. There's that family language here. And the context is judgment. So we'll get back to some of that in a few minutes. Go over to 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3, starting in verse 14. Paul says, I hope to come to you soon, 
But I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how you ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. And so we see Paul uses this terminology, the household of God. So in both of these letters, we see the author giving instruction, uh, and we see them uh, giving instruction about family and church. So stay in 1 Timothy with me. Look back at chapter 2, verse 8. Here we see men lifting up holy hands. Verse 9 and following, we see women are are addressed to dress respectfully and learn quietly. Uh, And then over in verse chapter 3, we see instructions in the first part of elders and deacons. And then uh, we see where he calls them the household of God. Here's what I want you to understand tonight. A family and the church, a lot of people get the church wrong. And a lot of people get family wrong. And the reason is because you can't have one without the other. There's certain qualities about families and about churches that go together. That's why we see this metaphorical language all throughout the Bible. For instance, all families have order. Now, we're going to talk about ideal families tonight because we know that nothing is ideal in this world, right? But ideally, there is, there is order. And we see that you know, man is called the head of the home and, and there's, there's roles that are there we're going to talk about in a few minutes. There's also standards. At verse 15, we see Paul talking to uh, to Timothy here, and he says that we are the... Let me read it. The church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. There are standards within families. There are standards within the church of God. Look at verse chapter 5, verses 1 and following, and see if you pick up on any family language here. 1 Timothy 5.1. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers. Older women as mothers. Younger women as sisters in all purity. Honor widows who are truly widows. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. And then look at verse 8. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. You see this, this idea of, of life within a family? I want to submit to you that this is also about the church. Timothy is writing to, uh, Paul is writing to Timothy about the church. And I think it could be said as well that if anyone does not provide for his own church family, those who is connected to by the Spirit of God. If he was to deny his own family, then he's worse than an unbeliever. This family language is so strong throughout the Bible that we are called in this, in this uh, book and as well as in 1 Peter to love each other with a brotherly love. Now, this idea of brotherly love is something you've probably heard all your life. Brother, we're to love one another like brothers. That means something, doesn't it? When you hear the term, you're to love your brother in Christ like your actual brother. That, that should mean something. I mean, God didn't say you should uh, 
you should ha practice co-worker love to one another. I mean, wouldn't that be strange if, if you were to love your fellow Christian like you love your co-workers? That wouldn't really work, would it? Some of you are grimacing right now because you don't like your co-workers. You may not like your brother or sister, okay? But the reality is that comparison for ideal, the ideal family, is to love your brother. To love your fellow Christian. God doesn't say love your fellow Christian like you love baseball. Why? Because that's not ubiquitous. No, not everybody loves baseball. Some of us do, some of us don't. Why does family work? Because everyone is part of a family. Even if that family is not ideal, we long for the ideal. We want to love brothers. We want a brother we can love. We want a mom and dad who raise us right. We long for the perfect, the ideal. And so tonight we talk about the ideals. Why does family work? Because everyone's part of a family. And even if it's not ideal, you long for what's perfect. And you know how to be loved and you know how to love. So we love each other like brothers and sisters within the church because this metaphor is not talking about just family, but it's talking about the church. We are family. Here at the Vine, we even put the name in the church name, right? The Vine, a family church. We are part of the family of God, the larger family, the church universal, but this specific family of God. And like I talked about earlier, every family has order. So what I want to do right now is I want us to go back over some things that we taught when we were meeting on Sunday night. Some of you were with us and some of you weren't. But when we talked about how we believe in men and women and their roles, we also believe in parents. We're going to talk about this idea of family in the context. What does it mean, since God uses this terminology as a family, what does that mean for you and I? How can we apply this? Well, first we need to look at men and women. Uh, turn to Genesis chapter 1. We haven't been studying Genesis a whole lot at this church, so this may be difficult to keep up with. <clears throat> Pastor Andy has been doing a phenomenal job taking us through the book of Genesis. We're in chapter 3 now. I'm anxious to see what chapter 4 brings. But one of the things I want you to see is uh, that spiritually, God created man and, and woman equal spiritually. We are spiritually equal. Much discussion has come about the equality of men, man and woman in terms of value. And one is right to say God loves men and women. God values men and women. There's no distinction when it comes to our standing before God. Galatians 3.28 says there's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female for all are one in Christ. Now many have used that verse to, to say that men and women's roles are equal. That has nothing to do with roles. That has everything to do with salvation. And when we stand before God, each of us have to repent uh, before God to, uh, to be right with God. So uh, we're called to that. Look at Genesis 1.27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created him. So we are created spiritually equal, but we are distinctively different. We are distinctively different. I mean, childbearing. And Pastor Andy brought that up this morning. That is a distinct function of women. Now, that's all we have to say. There, there's a big difference between men and women. Childbearing, amen? And let's be honest, we're wired different. There are so many ways that we differ. Men walk up to other men and they ask the question, what do you do? Women walk up to other women and they ask, oh, I love their shoes. <laughs> we're just wired different, aren't we? 
you know, I'm reminded of the GPS. Julie and I, when we're traveling sometimes together, we'll have a GPS, and Julie doesn't like me to be looking at the GPS, so she gives me the directions from the GPS, who's also talking to me. So it's really fun. And uh, <laughs> I like to look at the picture to see the next turn that's coming. She likes to look at the list where it says what's coming up next. I can't read the list. I don't have time to read. I just need to see what my next turn is. Men and women, we're just wired differently. I did this on the way to the mountains one year and missed the bypass around Atlanta. During evening, headed home traffic. Going to Gatlinburg, and we went through Atlanta. And I still hear about that. Not from Julie as much because she loves me, but from her parents who think it's funny. <laughs> Men, we... We like the voice of the GPS. We like to see the map because it's a picture, and we like pictures, right? So women want to switch to the list so they can see the whole thing. We're different. We have distinct roles. Mother, father, husband, wife. The very fact that we have specific passages that address fathers and mothers and husbands and wives is a testament that we have distinct roles. Ephesians 5 it clearly tells us, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit, should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he may sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or anything that she might be holy and without blemish. And verse 32 in chapter 5 of Ephesians says this, This mystery is profound that I am saying, and it refers to Christ and the church. So he's talking about family and how the family has order, husband, wife, and he says, I'm not talking about husbands and wives. I'm talking about the church and how there's order in the church. Titus 2 but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. And so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Do you see the distinction there? Do you hear it? Mature men are to train Younger men to be men. Mature women are to train younger women to be women. This is the pattern throughout Scripture. This is the order that God has placed in the family and in the home and in the church. With women, we see a list of characteristics that are to be taught. You hear men say a lot, I want a Proverbs 31 woman. All you single men out there, that's what you should be looking for. Proverbs 31 woman or, or a Titus 2 woman, right? Amen. And you might wonder where the list is for the men because verse 6 just simply says and urge younger men to be self-controlled. And that's it. You've got a long list for women and it just <laughs> says younger men are to be trained to be self-controlled. But isn't that the basic difference between older men and younger men? Self-control? If you're a man in here and you are maturing, isn't that something you need help in constantly to grow in the area of self-control? It's kind of like pulling up to the stoplight. And there's a sports car next to you, right? And it's, it's usually a young guy in a sports car, although it may, you may see some older guys in sports cars or elder guys in sports cars as well. Some of you may have them, so I'm not trying to offend anybody here. <laughs> what, what usually happens, you get excited. You want to rev up the engine and roll with it, right? As you get older, that, that begins to matter a whole lot less. 
you have self-control. Some of us are on the, in the middle there, right? We're still like, no, I shouldn't. And, and maybe we have enough discipline not to, especially, especially if you have a 1.4 liter scion. <laughs> it doesn't matter what you do, you ain't getting nowhere. All right, so... Now, I do believe men have a list. I believe it's in Titus 1, and I believe it's the list for elders. And we don't have time to go into that, but there's a list for what elders are to be. And listen, if you have a son and you don't want him to be like that, God help you. Because that is a wonderful list of how men should be. It's talking about overseers there, but I believe that is also the list for young men. Pastors are, are the example there. They're told to shepherd the flock in 1 Peter 3, so that's a... But there's much discussion about who should do what in the home, isn't there? Let me encourage you not to come to God's word with suppositions or presuppositions and with the wisdom of this age as you look at men's roles and women's roles. The truths from long ago do not change. That's why it is so exciting to go through Genesis because we get back to the very foundation of creation and the order that God created. I love... uh, I love... John Piper and Wayne Grudem's book, Recovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. They give a definition of of male headship that I really like. And it says this, In the partnership of two spiritually equal human beings, man and woman, the man bears the primary responsibility to lead the partnership in a God-glorifying direction. Now, the antithesis to male headship is male domination. And by that I mean the assertion of a man's will over a woman's will heedless to her spiritual equality, her rights, or her value. So let's look at Genesis 2. Turn back to Genesis 2. And we're going to fly through this because we've been talking about it on Sunday mornings, but I think it's important when we talk about men's and women's roles to go back to where it all began. We see some important issues, issues that may not be popular but are nonetheless important. Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. The Lord God said it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. And out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field, every bird of the heavens, and brought them to the man to see what he would call him. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the heavens, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took took one of his ribs and closed up the place with flesh. And the rib, the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. The man said, this is at last bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. A few things here that establish male headship in the home. First, we see... God said, uh, or God created a woman for the man as a helper. Notice God did not create a ruler for the man. God as creator was already man's ruler at this point. And it's at this point that I'm tempted to make several jokes about husbands and wives and their roles. Yet I am reminded of a moratorium set in place two weeks ago by our pastor Andy uh, that such jokes should not be used anymore because they aren't funny. And frankly, I agree. It is time we stop joking about men and women's roles. We have far too long made jokes about this. So I reinstate or reinforce the moratorium that's been set in place. 
But we do see here that God created Eve for Adam. Can you picture it? You know, Adam's there, no helper found for him. He ain't going to make it, right? <laughs> he needs a helper. Then after he says, uh, it's almost like verse 19 and 20 are out of place there. Adam named the animals. Everybody has somebody, but nobody can be found for Adam. And so God created a woman. And he, and he took her from the man. He took a rib while he was asleep. And God brought her to the man. Those prepositions are important. God actively created her distinct and brought her to Adam as a helper for, for him, from him, and now to him. And Adam says, now this is finally bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman. And he names the woman. That's significant. Adam names the woman. Because God named things prior to this, and now Adam has been given an authority to give her a name. And we see that verse that says, that for this reason a man shall leave his mother and father and cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. One man, one woman, one lifetime, right here in the book of Genesis. Amen. What, is, what else does Genesis teach us about headship? Genesis chapter 3, after the fall, who does God come to the garden looking for? We talked about that this morning. The Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? He called to the man, where are you? The consequences were sped around, but God called for Adam to give an account for what had taken place. Men, you are responsible for the spiritual health of your family. In an age where men and women alike would rather pass off their responsibilities to someone else, it is time we took the responsibility that is ours to raise up and train up another generation of godly men and women. It is the man's responsibility. Parents are primary in the discipleship of their kids. We're going to preach and teach here at the Vine and encourage and train you to love and disciple and evangelize your children because we see the family as a significant place in God's plan for discipleship and evangelism. So we believe in men and women and their distinct roles. They're spiritually being equal. Their distinct roles. But we also believe in parents. We believe in parents. You say, I don't have kids. Well, this is a great preparation for when and if you do. I wish I knew what I know now before I had kids. <laughs> Praise God, I wish I knew what I knew now before I had kids. You never know when you may be called to parent someone whether it be biologically through adoption or as a friend of mine who, who was given his three siblings to raise. Who knows what will happen in your life where you will have to parent be responsible for the nurture and admonition of, your, of children. There's much in the Bible about parents, and there's much assumed in the Bible as well. Turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 4. Deuteronomy 4 and 6. Deuteronomy, the giving of the law here, there is so much about passing on what's been taught to the next generation, to the children in these verses. Uh, we'll start in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 9, where Moses says, Only take care and keep your soul diligently, lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen, and lest they depart from you, from your heart, all the days of your life. Make them known to your children and your children's children. So grandparents, hello. There you are, called out right there in the Bible. Make them known to your children and your children's children. Now hopefully you pass it on to your children that they may pass it on to their children 
and you uh, just know that you're to do more than just spoil them when they come to your house. Verse 10, how on that day that you stood before the Lord, your God in Horeb, the Lord said to me, gather the people to me that I may let them hear my words so that they may learn to fear me all the days they live on the earth and that they may teach their children so. And then Deuteronomy 6.4, the verse a child in, 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 uh, in Israel would be one of the verse, first verses they learned. One of the first verses they memorized were Deuteronomy 6.4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall take talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And you shall send them to the local church to be discipled by some 18-year-old guy. Oh, wait, that part's not in there. Maybe that's a soapbox I'll stay off of tonight. Parents are the primary, the primary people responsible for the nurture and admonition of their children, for their discipleship, for their evangelism. God help us if we think it's the church's responsibility. The church is a help, a support to that. But it is primarily the parents' responsibility to nurture and admonish their children, to teach them, to raise them up in godly homes. There are so many passages throughout the Word of God. Proverbs is filled with them where kids are to obey their parents. I wish we had time to go through each of them tonight. But hear me when I say this, and I have a heart for this because I've been there. You can do all that you can as a minister of the gospel to pour into a, to a child's life. But if their parents aren't poured into them, it will be ineffective. And God's grace is sufficient. And I've seen stranger things happen. But it is not the norm in the Bible for a, for a, a family to send their kids to someone else for discipleship. It is your responsibility. It is clear that it is the parents' responsibility. You know what? We're going to teach and preach the gospel here at the Vine. And there are kids listening right now. And that is good. I am grateful for a coloring sheet this morning. I'm serious about this. That, that Caleb sat there and I rebuked him. I was trying to get him to shush. Man, I was like, shh, what are you doing, boy, talking during the service? He was pointing to a tree on this coloring page that he had. Is this what Andy, Mr. Andy's talking about? He saw the tree in the garden on the picture. Is this what Mr. Andy's talking about? So kids are getting it. But they got to get it at home first. They got to understand it there. They're going to get it here too. We're called to equip our children. Listen to these verses. You shall therefore lay up these words of mine in your heart and your soul, and you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be a frontlet between your eyes. You teach them to your children, talking to them when you're sitting in your house, when you're walking by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise. That's Deuteronomy 11. Proverbs 13. Whoever spares his rod, spares the rod, hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. Proverbs 19. Discipline your son, for there is no hope. Do not set your, for there is hope. I'm sorry. Do not set your heart to putting him to death. And discipline him. If you don't, he's, he's, he's going to die from his sin. 
Train up a child in the way he should go, even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Proverbs 23, do not withhold discipline from a child, for if you strike him with the rod, surely he will not die. If you strike him with the rod, you will save his soul from Sheol. Man, I was in the parking lot at racetrack getting gas one day, and this lady was disciplining her son, and she felt the need to apologize to me because I was right next to her hearing the whole thing. She said, I'm sorry. I, I, and she had slapped him in the back of his head one good time. He was cutting shine. You know, that's what we always call it. And uh, I said, no, ma'am, that's fine with me. The Bible says, withhold not correction from the child, for if thou beatest him with the rod, surely he will not die. For thou shalt beat him with the rod and deliver his soul from hell. And she went, I knew I had a witness. I knew I had a witness. Hallelujah. You heard that, boy? She was excited. She knew the scriptures. She's doing the right thing. She just needed somebody to confirm it. Listen to what it says for fathers. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Colossians 3, 21. Fathers, do not embitter your children or they will become discouraged. So how are we doing? Passing down the legacy of godliness to the next generation. How are we doing with training them up? As I said earlier, the home is central to discipleship and evangelism in the next generation. Turn back over with me to the Ephesians. I'm probably we're getting somewhere. Let's go. Ephesians chapter 6. This is where we'll camp out almost for the rest of the night. Ephesians chapter 6. These short four verses are packed with so much truth that I believe it's important for us as we understand what the family is and why we emphasize family for discipleship and evangelism. Children. Hey, children. Obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord context here is the, the Ephesians was a letter that was distributed to be read in the church. And we see Paul addresses children right along with husbands, wives, and slaves further in the passage. So this letter was being read. Just how I said, children, listen. That's exactly what this letter was doing. It was read right there for children. It wasn't distributed to another person to go teach children. It was straight to the children. Paul addresses them along with everyone else. This is significant because Paul didn't write a separate curriculum to be given to children's church workers. The children were there, and tonight they are here, and many of them have a sheet maybe to fill out along with the rest of us to hear uh, from God himself as he speaks to us through his word. So, as Paul addressed children, and as I did just a couple months ago, we'll do it again tonight. Children, everybody listen up. All you kids, look at it. Y'all ready? Listen to this passage. It says, children, obey your parents. Now, tied to this command to honor your mother and father is a very specific promise. It says, uh, the this is the first commandment with a promise. The promise is that you will live long in the land. Now, in the context of that, that land that they were fixing to walk into was the promised land. But there was something in the promised land. They were pagans. There were people who were not godly. They were very ungodly people. And so it was very important for a Hebrew father and mother to invest in their children so that when they went into this land, they would continue to follow, to follow God. They were going into a pagan land of ungodly people. 
And so Moses says, teach this to your children. Teach this to your children. Because they're going to need to remember this when they're faced with temptation. Parents must teach the next generation. They must honor what is taught. Or we will no longer prosper in the land. Folks, we live in a pagan land. Hello? America is not a Christian nation. We are far from a godly nation. We could pull up all kinds of statistics that would prove that, but most of those are made up right on the spot anyway, right? We don't have to go far to see that we live in an ungodly nation. So listen, children, to a a short couple verses from Proverbs. It says, Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and forsake not your mother's teaching. Listen to your mom and your dad as they teach you. Proverbs 6 says, My son, keep your father's commandment and forsake not your mother's teaching. Do you see these parents? They're not supposed to forsake your teaching. The implication is that you're to be teaching them. (laughs) Proverbs 23, 22, Listen to your father who gave you life and can take you out. No, it doesn't say that. (laughs) Do not despise your mother when she is old. Proverbs 30, the eye that mocks a father and scorns to obey a mother will be picked out by the ravens of the valley and eaten by vultures. All right, moving on. Back to, <laughs> back to Ephesians. I knew you kids would like that. Back to Ephesians. It says, obey your parents in the Lord. This is significant, so significant that we must back up a little to understand Paul's emphasis on where we get strength to do what God asks us to do. So kids, I want you to hold your place. Ephesians 1 and look back, I mean Ephesians, look over to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5 verse 18 gives us the context of how we're to do these things in the Lord. Ephesians 5, 18 says, and do not get drunk with wine, but for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. The Spirit is the one who empowers you to obey your parents. Wives, look at verse 22. Submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Where do you find the strength to submit to your husband who is hard-headed and hard to submit to? You do it in the spirit of God. Husbands, look at verse 25. Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. How do you do that? You're filled with the spirit of God. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. How do you do it? You do it in the Lord. You show me a husband who loves his wife and sacrifices for her, I'll show you a spirit-filled man of God. You show me a wife who biblically submits to her husband, I will show you a person who is filled with God's spirit. You show me children who obey their parents, who honor their mother and father, I'll show you spirit-filled children. Now, who is our greatest example? I want you kids to answer that. Who is our greatest example in the Bible? Jesus, that's right. So listen carefully to Luke chapter 2, when Jesus was a child. It says, And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? This is when uh, Mary and Joseph had left Jerusalem and Jesus stayed behind. They couldn't find him. They they thought Jesus was was with some of the relatives here. This is in Luke chapter 2. But Jesus stayed behind. He was in the temple teaching. Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them, because that's what they asked him to do. 
And he came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. See that Luke 2.51? He obeyed his parents. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. Some of you mothers can, can respond to that, you know, not, not out loud, but just when your children obey, treasure that. Luke 2.52 says, And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Don't miss this. Jesus was obedient to his parents. He was submissive to them. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Let me ask you a question. Where did Jesus go? Because we don't hear from him again until he's around 30 years old. He went home. He went home like any Jewish boy would go to be trained in the nurture and admonition of God. That's, that's significant. He didn't go off to seminary. He didn't go off to youth camp. He didn't go on a weekend encounter. He went home. He was taken to synagogue weekly. He learned the things of God. He submitted to his parents. I mean, Jesus was perfect. He's our great example, but that's, that's not the point. The pattern we see throughout Scripture is the same pattern that we see in Jesus' life, that parents are responsible for training their children. Just, just humor me for a minute. Can you imagine being at the dinner table with Jesus? Can you imagine being one of Jesus' brothers or sisters? I mean, Mary tells James, stop playing with your food. Why can't you be more like Jesus? <laughs> to which James replies, why can't you be more like Jesus? <laughs> it was perfect. I mean, ask yourself this question, though. Who is primarily responsible for the evangelization and discipleship of your children? Is it the church? think biblically we can say without a shadow of a doubt it's your responsibility and that's why this passage continues in Ephesians 6 4 fathers do not provoke your children to anger but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord now though fathers have been given the power we must not abuse that power remembering that our children are in a particular manner pieces of ourselves and therefore ought to be governed with great tenderness and love we're, we're to be careful not to become impatient with them or to be unreasonable in our requests to them. And when we caution them, when we counsel them, when we reprove them, we do it in such a manner not to provoke them to anger. In all such cases, we're to deal prudently and wisely with our children. Notice it says nothing about mothers in this verse. It just says fathers. Why? Because the responsibility falls to the man. The family should get its vision for parenting from the father. Any teaching that a mother does should flow from the discipleship she has received herself from her husband. Fathers, husbands, you are the family shepherds in your home. The wife should act as a support to the vision presented by you. She should be able to have a say in it for sure because the two become one flesh. So, so that doesn't mean she doesn't ever say anything. It just means she doesn't say too much. <laughs> she understands that God has placed the man in authority and she willingly and happily submits to his leadership even when he's wrong. And guys, we don't need to make a habit of being wrong, but we are going to be wrong. Amen? We're going to mess up. And it's in those times where we have to learn to be humble and to confess uh, to one another that we're wrong.
know what many will ask. What about those who are fatherless? Because when I talk about youth ministry being something that uh, that we need to be very careful uh, how we view it. A lot of people, when I say, you know, I came from youth ministry and I, I just really don't think it was effective, and, and I, I mean that. I, I spent spent 12 years of my life doing youth ministry, and I don't think those were wasted years. I think God used it, but I can tell you there's two types of people who came out of my youth ministry or came out of the youth ministry I was involved in who are still living in the faith. Two types of people. Uh, one, those kids whose parents were teaching them at home. Those kids whose parents constantly talked about God with them. Those, those are still successful in life. And the other were, were practically adopted by us. They, they ate with us. They stayed the night at our house. Some of them lived with us for periods of the time. Uh, we practically adopted them. And we were, we were parenting them. I don't think that's the best design. But those are the ones who've been successful. And so when I talk about this idea of youth ministry, uh, I, I struggle regularly with how effective that is when you can count on less than two hands, the teenagers, who hundreds and hundreds, who are still living for the Lord and haven't wandered off into the world. So what should we do? What about the fatherless? Well, truly religion is defined by James as caring for orphans and widows, keeping oneself unstained from the world. Perhaps, perhaps God would use you to father someone who's fatherless, to parent someone who's parentless. We need to consider adoption on, on every level, on on just bringing people who don't have uh, parents in their life and maybe just simply adopting. Uh, it needs to be an option in churches. <clears throat> so how do, we, how do we put all this information together? How will we let this metaphor of the family affect us as the vine, a family church? And I have no problem calling the vine church a family of families. We are, are not just that. We are the bride of Christ. We are his elect. But the frequency of the metaphor of the family has to play into how we view ourselves. Each believer has a place in the family of the vine. So let's love one another like an ideal family. We're not ideal, in case you hadn't noticed. But we want to love each other like an ideal family. So how, how does this affect us? Let's strengthen families at the vine. We're going to make a huge emphasis. We have been, and we'll continue to make a huge emphasis on the family. Men are going to be pressed to be the spiritual leader of their families, to be the, the family shepherd in their homes. We're going to continually encourage biblical headship in the home. Now, I think most of you know Andy and I and, and by now and, and, and know that we by no means mean that men are more important than women or that headship means domineering, but we will not ignore the clear teaching that men are called out to be responsible for their families by loving their wives as Christ loved the church. What does that look like? That means praying for her. You know what Christ, he, he wept and prayed for the church. He loved the church. He laid his life down for the church. That's, that's what us men are called to do. What does that look like? Pray with them. Do, do, read the Bible together. Do couple devotions together. There's lots of good material out there. Secondly, nurture and admonish your children. Family devotion. Talk about Jesus with your family. Talk about the things of God with your family. We've got resources back there on the table. Annie and I can share with you some other resources that are good, whether it be, uh, uh, you know, uh, Long Story Short or the Picture Bible. 
Sing, <laughs> sing spiritual songs with your children. Some of you say, I don't sing. Man, get a CD. <laughs> Do something. Sing about the spiritual truths of God's work. Take some, some literature and just start doing it. Some people say, I don't know how to get started. Just start. Start somewhere. Start reading a passage and praying together. It doesn't have to be anything super organized. And God will guide you in direction. Confess where you've messed up in the past and, and, and now. Because you will. You know, as, as my kids get older, I call it the age of humility that they reach. They reach the age where they can really tell when you mess up. And they point it out. And it's in those moments that we try to defend what we did or said by justifying it in some way or saying that we meant to really do it that way. And we have to be humble and confess, you know what, I messed up. Daddy's not perfect. Only Jesus is perfect. And Daddy's trying to be like Jesus, but he's not Jesus. And so we keep pressing on. We lead out in the importance of the family of God. We take our families to church. When I say family, I'm not talking about a bunch of kids. That's great. But maybe it's just you and your wife right now. You're responsible for her. You're her shepherd, her family shepherd. Lead out in church uh, and, and making church a priority in your life, the family of God. Ladies, be a helper. Be a helper to your husband. Lead, lead your children. They're, they're your children. Teach them the things in accordance with the scripture. Um, you know, under, un, I, I have told Julie, I said, Julie, when we talk about this, it almost looks like men are just supposed to teach. No, you see all throughout Proverbs, listen to your mother's instruction, you know. And so I tell Julie all the time, I have given you the authority. Don't, don't ever back down. Teach these kids. Let's, let's disciple them. Man, one of the precious things about homeschooling is they have a Bible time. They can talk about things of, of God. And, and, and I, while I'm not directly involved in that, I know what it is. And, and we're getting it, getting it into them. Uh, teach them. Bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Timothy, the guy that Paul was writing to, he learned from his mother and his grandmother. You know, maybe there's single families out there. What do they do? They teach their children. They raise them. What about you elder adults out there? I say elder because older sounds so bad. Your children may not, uh, you know, may be grown, but they still are a part of your family. Pray for them. Call them. Talk about scripture with them. You say, well, they're not going to listen to me. Keep trying. Keep praying. Keep trying. Let them know that you're praying for them. Who knows how they'll receive it? That's not your responsibility. Your responsibility is to nurture and admonish them. And then everyone. How does this apply to everyone? Let's be ideal family members. In our homes, whatever role we are, whether we're the father, the mother, or children, or the husband or wife, let's be ideal. Let's shoot for the ideal. And if we're church members in, in, our, in our church, in our family of God here, let's be an ideal family member. Let's love one another with brotherly love. And let's praise God for his design of order in the church. Amen.